Hello everyone, it's June 6, 2023. So Starliner is in the news again with some new problems. The parachutes aren't as reliable as Boeing would like, and there's a lot of possibly flammable tape on board holding a lot of wires together. So no launch next month. When can we expect one? Not sure, but let's talk about it. And liftoff! And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 412 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So what interesting location are you coming to us from, Dennis? <laughs> <laughs> I'm in uh, Albuquerque. Which uh, everyone who keeps referencing it, or when I mention that to them, they keep referencing uh, Breaking Bad, but I always think of it as Bugs Bunny. Oh, yeah, take a left at Albuquerque. Yeah, make the left at Albuquerque. Are we really in a world where people's first instinct isn't to go straight to uh, Weird Al? Yeah, there we go. Mike in the chat says Weird Al. (laughs) (laughs) Is he from Albuquerque? I actually didn't know that. No, no, no. He has a song called Albuquerque, which is like a really weird song. It's one of his non-parodies? Yeah, it's it's more like a story. Like it's an original song and it's just bizarre. Well, I was just going to say, when I think of Albuquerque, I think of hot air balloons. Isn't that where that's- Oh yeah, the, the, the hot air balloon festival. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. core memory from my childhood. So also, I just want to quickly mention, since we're not going to get to it in the rest of the show, that uh, there has been some progress made with Dream Chaser. Uh, they powered up the space plane, which is cool. So apparently it's just, you know, flight computers and other components uh, in there one step closer. I think we mentioned that. Did we mention them in a short and sweet or something last week? Yeah, I think so. It kind of went away for a while and now it's back and now it's yeah. getting there. And I'm just glad to see it's around. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's like a familiar friend. And I guess we'll be talking about very shortly some other, I don't know, familiar friends that seem to be lingering, but maybe aren't, I don't know, <laughs> making as much progress. I don't know. Should we just move on to the news? Sure. <laughs> I can't think of a better a better intro. Starliner woes. So more issues with Starliner. Just when we thought we might be looking at a launch next month, in fact. Looks like that's not going to happen. Yeah, spoiler alert, that's not happening. So the the news driver here is uh, a teleconference that uh, went out this week. Um, Apparently a short notice. Uh, I just listened to it on uh, on a replay. Um, There'll be a link in the show notes. Uh, But it was... uh, a press conference from NASA and Boeing uh, about Starliner. And so like there was one thing that I think is old news, but I forgot about. So last time when they were getting ready for OFT2, they had this big like launch delay complex, right? It was like delay and delay and then, oh, we're good. And then it kind of like fell back. Um, And that was all due to a sticky valve. And then after they decided to like totally scrub the launch and stop and investigate the leak, or the the valve the sticky valve they found that it was corrosion due to a fuel leak and so like they had to like do all this work well they are mitigating the chances of that happening again by adding a launch requirement where they only will uh add fuel to the vehicle uh 60 days in advance of the launch and no longer like it won't sit with fuel uh for longer than 60 days so I, I think that mitigation is old news, but I wanted to mention it again. And so this press conference follows um, like some real last minute, like final reviews, uh, deciding whether it's okay to put uh, people on this vehicle. And they came up with two issues that sort of they said didn't fit in other uh, other parts of the review flow. And so they decided to kind of inject them straight into this big final review. And they found, nope, we can't. Uh, we can't proceed until we have addressed these two issues. And they, they are very recent issues um, that have cropped up. And I'll talk about why they cropped up when they did, because uh, I, I think it's interesting and important. Um, but yeah, like we said, <laughs> they're they're not going to be flying uh, for for a while. They're not even sure when they're going to be able to estimate or, you know, to set a, a launch date um, at the moment, because they're really just they've just started working on this. So they don't know exactly how long it's going to take uh, to finish this. But the first one is a parachute loading issue. Uh, so their uh, parachutes are provided by airborne systems. Uh, they were very specific um, in mentioning that we all have a hand in this. They said, we don't want to make it look like this is all airborne systems fault. Honestly, it looks like it's not airborne's fault at all. It looks like the parachutes are fine. It looks like some choices made downstream from that contractor uh, were the issue. But so the issue comes down to... Um, a little piece 
uh, of fabric called a soft link. And l- let me explain this from a paradise or Paris. What is it? Skydiving perspective, like from, from oh. a human parachute uh, perspective, because that's uh, how I approach all parachute uh, terminology <laughs> <laughs> is I go with the very, very abundant human parachute systems, learn what a thing is, and then I can take terms and go uh, do research and understand what I'm reading um, in spaceflight. So for skydiving, initially, the way that we would build our parachute was you'd have the parachute material itself and probably like, you know, eyelets uh, in the parachute material. But then you have to attach um, your risers to the parachute and the risers are the cables that stretch from the parachute down to the harness that's carrying your weight. And so initially they used, um, I I believe they actually use metal. Uh, they called them links. And so it's, you know, maybe like a loop of metal or, uh, maybe a, a chain, one of those, uh, chain segments where like it's got like a thread on it so it's basically like a threaded carabiner but it looks like a a chain link Um, but they you know i think they use metal at first and then they realized that this is like not the best way to do this and so they switched over to fabric links called soft links and i think there's even a brand name called s link but for skydiving that connects the riser to the parachute in this context the soft link is actually farther down, closer towards the spacecraft. Um, it's not right at the parachute edge. Uh, in this case, um, they have the the parachute fabric, and it has uh, what are called suspension lines. It's like eighty of these lines for each of the three main parachutes. And I believe these lines are actually like sewn into the fabric uh, of the parachute. Don't quote me, but I don't think that there's a, a link connecting the suspension lines to the chute. So there are 80 of these suspension lines per chute, and they gather uh, 10 at a time into bridles. Um, and in, the bridles connect the suspension lines uh, to the risers that actually stretch down to the spacecraft. Um, and inside these bridles, it sounds like there are about three soft links. The numbers are a bit iffy because... Boeing was speaking off the cuff and they said, I believe it's this. I think it's this. If I remember correct, it's this. And then I had to like do some division, but the division works out. They said like 24, um, soft links per parachute, 80 suspension lines that gather 10 at a time. So that gives us eight bridles, uh, 24 divided by eight is three. That seems to work out whether these soft links. And so the suspension lines can go through this, uh, loop of fabric And then the other end of the loop of fabric can go through the actual riser um, that connects to the spacecraft. And so when it, you know, the name link is very apt because it's just a way to tie two different uh, string like things together. What happened here is that um, they had this whole parachute system, which one part of the system is these soft links. Um, And they, they had the system, they went and tested it and like did all this work and during a review, they realized, hey, this data that we collected, it might have been recorded incorrectly. And if it's recorded incorrectly in the way that we think it is, it means that we can't rely on our system to have as high of a failure load as as we expected it to. So they go and they retest. Uh, they like do validation testing and double check and oh crap, they did record their numbers wrong. So nothing in the system has changed except for Boeing's understanding of the system. And when they updated their understanding, it turns out that yeah, their failure load is lower and it means that their factor of safety is also lower. So the factor of safety, right, is like the margin, the extra room that they have on top of the loads that they expect the system to endure. And for human rated systems, you want very wide safety margins. For this particular component, I believe they need a factor of two, which means that it can hold twice the load that you would want it to. And the reason it's only two could be higher, but the reason it's only two is because there are three shoots. So if you lose one of them, that adds 30%. So then everything else has to take on uh, 15 or each of the other two have to take on 15% of the total, which is actually like a 50% extra. And then they have another 50% on top of that after one of the shoots is gone. Forgive me if my ratio math is wrong there. So all this to say, 
um, the better understanding of the system resulted in lower margins, but not broken margins. Like they still have a margin is just lower than we want when we fly people. And that that's fine. Like basically on all three shoots, it's fine on two shoots. It's fine, but it's a little dodgy. So let's not, let's not even risk it. And you know, obviously it's not that casual, but like, let's not risk it. So the mitigation for this is really simple. They pull the shoot system out of the vehicle um, they tear open those bridles and they pull out the old soft links and they're going to have to replace them with something. They're not sure what new soft link they're going to replace them with. Maybe they might just augment them. I kind of would be surprised if that was the case, but they were saying that like this issue seems to be very concentrated in just this one part. And so all we have to do is pull the shoots out, fix a shoot, repack the shoot. We don't have to, uh, switch to a new parachute system or anything. It sounds not too bad. It's a decent amount of work, but it doesn't sound that bad. And like, this is what we have reviews for, right? (laughs) Just to catch these things. Uh, So the second issue, they said, we discovered this very late in the the press conference. It has to do with the tape that they use to wrap their wire harnesses. And they really didn't want to, they, they didn't have an exact number but they were pressed over and over on the insulating tape issue. Um, people were asking all sorts of uh, follow-up questions to follow-up questions. Like it was, it was really good. And so they, they didn't want to have uh, like hold themselves accountable to a particular number, but apparently there are hundreds of miles, hundreds of miles, hundreds of feet of wiring that has this one particular tape that uh, is protecting the wire harness. I mean, honestly, it sounds like all of the wire harnesses in the vehicle all are, are wrapped in this tape. So um, the idea is you've got all these cables and you bundle them into, into a thicker uh, bundle and then you secure it and then you tape the whole thing in place uh, by wrapping tape around it once it's in place. And that holds the shape um, when you, you know, when you've got everything laid down just the way you want, you wrap it in tape and it holds its shape and it's it won't bounce. It won't pull. It's kind of like a, an exoskeleton. Um, but the tape is also really important to protect the wires and the cables from mechanical damage. Even just scuffs on the outer insulation of a wire can expose that wire, or it can set up a condition where that wire, that conductor could be exposed at a later time due to other stresses. And so it's like, it's one of the lessons they said, uh, Boeing said that one of the lessons that we really learned from shuttle was all of your wire harnesses, just wrap them. Um, it doesn't matter if you think there's going to be stress on them, just wrap everything. It's not, it's a good way to spend your mass. And so, oh boy, this really sucks. So late in the, the review process, they did some additional testing and they found out, oh crap, this tape is flammable. Now, like that sounds really horrible, right? It's, it's not quite that horrible. When, when I listen, the way that I interpret the words that they're saying is that they're kind of blaming the specs for this tape. And I've actually got links to the specs. We were talking about this on discord this week, and I was really happy to actually find the specs. Um, and there are two different products, but neither one of these specifications, um, says anything about flammability. In fact, one of them even says that it, this tape is good, uh, because it's good in high temperature environments. Both, uh, of these products are commonly used in space and they're recommended for space. And so on the call, they said, uh, quote, there's some ambiguity in the specifications on the use of that tape. Regardless, we have used it quite extensively on Starliner. Um, and then, you know, they say, well, we need to do the due diligence uh, to make sure that this is okay. And that's one of the things that, that brought up this flammability issue. So I, I, I feel like blaming the spec is a little bit of an excuse, but it's also not that bad of an excuse. And what it really comes down to is that the, the tape isn't you know, it's not celluloid, right? Like it's not, or not cellulose. It's not going to just ignite and explode and it won't burn in normal conditions. And it certainly won't burn in the vacuum of space. The problem is that it'll burn if it's in a high oxygen environment. They said an oxygen enriched environment. 
And, you know, that's not something that you usually encounter on a spacecraft. It's only when you have a spacecraft that has people on board that you have to worry about uh, oxygen um, being all over the place. <laughs> like you could have a leak anywhere and you could wind up with with oxygen anywhere. Um, even with oxygen as a fuel, I feel like it's not that big of an issue. Okay, so the, the two products here that I'm talking about um, are made by uh, a company called Permacel. Um, there's one that I believe is discontinued. Everything that I see says that it's discontinued. It's called P213. And then there's the replacement, which is P213LW. Um, and they both look very similar. Um, and I've got um, spec sheets for both of them in the show notes. And like I said, the, the spec sheets are like, this is great for space. Uh, it just doesn't say anything about uh, the flammability and oxygen, um, which, you know, you get people on a spacecraft, you start having oxygen in, in places that you might uh, also want to have uh, uh, wire harnesses running through. And like, I, I don't know the history of, of this particular product, but it's recommended for space because it has low off gassing after you've thermoset it. It's kind of cool. Like you wrap it and then you heat it up. And then you like, let it just cure in air, you just like warm it up and let it sit and it cures. And it's like, um, pretty cool. Um, but after you thermoset it, it has uh, low outgassing 213LW, the, the new replacement also I see cited as being good for high temperatures, which is like kind of ironic if the stuff happens to be flammable, but like Boeing said, you need uh, an oxygen enriched environment and we're not sure like how, uh, how enriched, like how much oxygen you need in one place. But, uh, it sounds like, yeah, you put it in, uh, an environment that has more oxygen than normal and it will indeed burn. Um, but you know, neither spec sheet mentions that situation. So we can kind of understand how the spec sheet could be ambiguous and could be blamed. And like all of this is to, is not to say that the P2 and three is going to absolutely explode at the first chance it gets. First, you need uh, a nick or a scuff on the insulation that goes through the overwrap and through the insulation and down to a conductor so that you can get a spark in the first place. You would need uh, the circuit protection to fail for that conductor to allow a spark to take place. Um, and then all that would need to happen in an O2 enriched environment. And like, still, it's probably not guaranteed at that point that it will burn, but Boeing has done a bunch of additional testing, um, to characterize how it burns and how much power is required. Um, and not all of their, um, not all of their wire, wire harness are, harnesses are even carrying enough voltage or amplitude, who knows, to actually, uh, create a spark uh, powerful enough to ignite this, but they've like done a bunch of extra research to characterize all these things. And they're saying, you know what? It's dangerous enough that we want to take care of it. And like, even if this is something that we would have hoped would have been discovered earlier, and I still have words to say about the timing, even if we would have hoped that this would have been caught earlier, you still have to very much appreciate the willingness to just throw things out the window if it puts people uh, people's lives uh, in jeopardy. So the, the mitigation for this um, is unlikely to be pulling out all the wire harnesses. David, I feel like you're kind of starting to touch on this at the beginning. And luckily, mm -hmm. that doesn't look like it's going to be the planned course of action or even that good of a mitigation, um, just balancing you know, the cost and benefit of a mitigation strategy. Instead, it looks like what they're going to do is uh, go over every inch of installed wire harnessing and make sure that none of it is damaged. Because if you start off from a place where there's no damage, you're unlikely to wind up with all, you know, three or four of those coincidences all happening at once. Like we can at least eliminate one of those, uh, one of those factors. Damage may happen after the vehicle's launched, but like that's, you know, one extra layer of Swiss cheese hole that has to line up. And yeah, so hopefully just inspection will solve that issue. What's a little odd is that both of these issues were present on OFT2. The reason that we know about them now is because of additional certifications for crew. That's really what ties into the timing on this. Um, for the 
wire harnesses, they were actually not certifying the wire harnesses themselves. They were certifying the fire extinguisher uh, that's going to live on board. And part of that certification, this really makes me happy. Part of that certification is listing every single flammable material on board. And they wound up finding that this tape was flammable, even though they didn't know that it was flammable to begin with. So they weren't compiling a list of all the materials and going, well, the SDS says that this isn't flammable, so we'll put it in this pile. Oh, the SDS says that this is flammable, so we'll put it in the other pile. They actually like went and searched and like gathered new data to ensure that their list of flammable materials uh, was correct. At least that's my interpretation. Uh, but that sounds really good to me. Uh, I, I really like that finding a flammable material because you are certifying a fire extinguisher. Then for the parachute system, it's exactly the same thing. It wasn't a complete certification for OFT2 because there weren't people on board. Instead, what it was certified for was, is this safe enough that we're okay with saying that it won't hurt people outside the vehicle since they're landing in the middle of the ocean? I feel like that was a pretty safe uh, certification to come to. Uh, but now that they're wanting to put people inside the vehicle, you have to make sure it's not going to hurt the people inside the vehicle. And so that wound up going over a bunch of data and apparently looking and seeing that their methods were wrong, like their data collection methods were wrong. And that really, to me, sounds like a robust uh, review strategy, if you can catch that. Now, granted, it's all at the end, right? All this is happening at, at some of their very final uh, reviews at the very end. And it sucks that they didn't catch us earlier. Maybe they could have, but the fact that this happened persisted and then was caught because they were being so thorough. I don't know. It sounds good to me. What do you guys think? I like it. It's the right thing to do. Like you said, I, I mean, it's, that's the reason why NASA is completely on board and they support the decision. I mean, I don't know what else they would say. So are you saying that maybe this is a sign that maybe like Boeing is sort of really turning things around? Hopefully. Yeah. That's what I'm hoping. Real quick, you said uh, NASA's on board. Yeah, actually, at, at this conference, they actually quoted Sunita Williams, and they said, Sunny is happy that we're making this thing safe. I was like, yeah, I bet she is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, one thing I actually did want to clarify or get some clarification on, so these wiring harnesses, right? Like a lot of it runs on the outside of the vehicle, not not on the outside, outside, but you know, like outside the pressure vessel, but behind the heat shield and yep. uh, the exterior panels and all that. So I'm imagining that just as long as there's no damage, they're not going to need to, really not going to need to replace that, right? Because I don't see how you can have a high oxygen rich environment in that space. I mean, it's possible, I suppose. Yeah, it's possible. Edge cases. Yeah. Maybe like an oxidizer leak on the pad, perhaps, or, something or, like that. Well, I mean, you could also have um, you know, your, your crew oxygen supply leak. And in that case, you have a hundred percent oxygen is very low pressure, but it's a hundred percent oxygen. How does that get from the cabin to the outside? You know, I mean, well, not like all the said, oxygen leak, is, but not all the oxygen is inside the pressure vessel, right? You've got O2 tanks outside the pressure vessel. So you got to have pipes and valves outside the pressure vessel. And I, and I think the short answer is also errantly is how it gets there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> to kind of directly one. answer. <laughs> yeah. One of uh, unknown unknowns. Yeah. Wait, we're still sending people in pure oxygen environments? No, I don't think so. I don't so. think so. Oh, okay. I thought... But right. And that that's why like, you know, crew atmosphere leaking probably wouldn't, would be an issue. But again, we, you know, we're, we're kind of guessing, but yeah, I think, I think you're totally right, Dennis, errantly. Uh, okay. So future uh, prognostication. They gave this uh, conference on June 1st. It's currently June 4th. You'll be listening to this on June 6th or 7th, I guess 6th uh, at the earliest. Um, and so on the 1st, they said that they would need five to seven days of answering what needs to be done type of questions. So <laughs> at that point, we'll be able to say when when they expect to be able to reschedule this launch. Uh, but they said for sure they're not going to be launching uh, in July. That, that's been blown. Ryan in the chat says, are we assuming... Uh, all this wiring is outside the pressure vessel. I had assumed there would be plenty of it inside as well. Yeah, so we know for sure that what they're, we know for sure that they are concerned about wiring outside the pressure vessel. I also, from the the way that the wording came out in the in the conference, it sounded to me like that was their primary concern. And I think basically what it comes down to is inside the pressure vessel, you've got nitrogen diluting uh, the oxygen. And so that's less of an issue. 
Um, you're not going to get up to this oxygen saturated sort of environment, but who knows? Like, yeah, maybe, maybe there's, um, you know, some of this tape inside the pressure vessel and maybe there's a corner of the spacecraft where, you know, in theory you could get some oxygen buildup, you know, who knows? Uh, but I think the primary issue is outside. Good question. I wish I had an answer. The best questions we don't have answers to, right? Hmm. Kind of the definition of a good question. I don't know why oxygen, I don't want to get into a chemistry question <laughs> thing, but like, I don't know why oxygen would preferentially leak into a cavity more than. Nitrogen. I don't think it would. Okay. No, it's it's one of those, like the only reason I'm saying that is because like weird shit happens in zero G, right? Mm. <laughs> like, that's, I don't want to discount that as a possibility. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I don't, I, I know of no mechanism that would, you know, plausibly do that unless you had an oxygen line leaking. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, well, that, actually, that's, that, that definitely good, could do it. That, that could do it. Yeah. But you wouldn't expect to have oxygen lines running through the pressure vessel. You'd have your Atlas system, your, your life support. I don't know if it's Atlas, but like life support outside the pressure vessel, or at least like some of the pre-processing, like gas mixing. I wouldn't expect them to dump pure oxygen into any part of the, the crew compartment even the life support. I don't know. Yeah, so you had said that obviously this will not be launching in July. I believe also someone said that it's not out of the realm of possibility that it will at least launch before the end of the year, right? Yeah. Just so everyone knows. I mean, we could still be looking at a launch in the next, you know, six months or so. Yeah. So that's good. I mean, like just just looking at like what they're going to have to do, It's it doesn't seem crazy that they'd be able to launch by the end of the year. But if they don't know, we definitely don't know. <laughs> well, fingers crossed because my whole thing that... I've been thinking, although as it takes longer and longer, this becomes less and less of a valid take, but is even if there's, you know, what, however many years of delays there's been since they actually uh, had that failed test flight, if they end up then flying, though, for five, ten years after the successful flight, which could, you know, potentially be before the end of the year, like you're saying, then at some point we'll forget about those three to four years of delays, you know? And it'll just be like, oh, yeah, they've been flying for years now. And it's, you know. Sure has happened in the past, hasn't it? Right? Yeah. We, we have short memories, I think, <laughs> uh, when it comes to that. So good luck. So let's do three short and sweets this week. Dennis, what is he first? UAE gives details on asteroid mission. After four years of planning, at a recent press conference, the UAE revealed details concerning their Asteroid Belt Exploration Project. Dubbed MAX for Multiple Asteroid Exploration, it involves the MBR Explorer spacecraft, named after Dubai's ruler Mohammed bin Rashid, flying by six asteroids before attempting a landing on the seventh. The 13-year mission, six years of development plus seven years to travel to the asteroid belt, will also involve multiple flybys of Venus, Earth, and Mars on its outbound trip. The UAE Space Agency hopes for greater than 50% of the vehicle to be developed domestically, while once again collaborating with the University of Colorado Boulder, who had helped with their Mars orbiter, Hope. All right, next, uh, commercial deep space radar. Last year, Northrop Grumman was contracted by USSF to construct a new radar site in the Indo-Pacific, the first of three planned sites. And this week, their hardware design passed critical design review. This three-site global radar system is intended to track satellites and debris in geostationary orbit. While sites in Europe and the continental U.S. are also planned, one can't help noting the current political climate when considering what the first choice site was. Next up, North Korean launch failure. North Korea's first spy satellite, Malikyong-1, failed to reach orbit when its Cholima-1 rocket suffered a second-stage anomaly. North Korean state-run news reported that the second-stage engine was new and thus had low reliability. The fuel aboard the rocket was also blamed, uh, being described as unstable. Despite condemnation from the UN for violating several Security Council resolutions, North Korea will attempt another launch as soon as possible. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and corrections. And we have one little correction from Vax Hedrum about that Soyuz roll rate you were talking about, Ben, last week yeah. in the Twisif. Yep. I screwed up math. What a shock. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't remember what math I used, but uh, so the Soyuz was in an 88.59 minute period orbit. That's 5,000-ish seconds worth of uh, per, per orbit. Uh, and since it was doing half a degree per orbit, that's 2,600-ish 
degrees of rotation per orbit, uh, which is quite a lot more than 360 degrees per orbit. Uh, it's actually seven and a half ish rotations per orbit. So, uh, much more than one rotation per orbit, uh, in the chat, I'm getting, um, yelled at for doing math live, <laughs> jokingly, <laughs> jokingly, I'm being burned for doing math. Live. I didn't do math live. I didn't do it. I know not to do that. I didn't do it. Uh, and so I, I don't know how I messed it up. But I did. Uh, right. So the Soyuz was not rotating just to face the sun, which would be like a zero roll, which would be like the least nauseating thing. It was rotating uh, 7.4 times per orbit, uh, half a degree per second, which is a little faster, seven, seven times faster. Um, and yeah, would, would maybe be enough to, to make you nauseated in like a very subtle, like background kind of way where you're like, is this what's making me feel queasy i'm not sure but fair enough sorry i got the math wrong all right um and with that little correction i guess we can move on to this week in spaceflight history so we just have two winners uh, both with bonus points we have uncle willie and psychile the clue was chonky boy which uh great clue delicious wonderful <laughs> and, uh, lovely refers to something big something chonky so what is that dennis yeah so this uh event in spaceflight history was the 8th of june 2007 and it was the launch of STS-117. And I'm pretty excited to talk about this one because this had a lot going. Uh, there were a lot of different things happening. And so there were different directions I felt like I could have tried to take a clue. And I just went with, I think, what was pretty brute force of a clue, Chonky Boy. But yeah, we'll get to it. So in some ways, we can go back further in time uh, to set up this event. And it was, uh, if we go back to February 26th of that same year, 2007, and Atlantis, the orbiter, it's stacked, it's sitting on the pad, it's ready to go to the space station as part of the uh, uh, ISS assembly mission, uh, 13A specifically. While it's chilling at pad 39A, a hailstorm passes by and just wreaks havoc on the poor external tank, ET-124. And so depending on what source or where I look, I get anywhere from a few thousand to 4,000 to 7,000 areas of damage on the tank, hitting all four quadrants, so it wasn't just a one-sided kind of wind smacking the one side of the tank, and it just took a beating, essentially. And uh, some tiles, some of the TPS tiles on the left wing of the orbiter also suffered some damage too. And so, as you can imagine, this is kind of an issue, and as a result, uh, that was going to that mission was going to end up being delayed until this week. <laughs> yeah. uh, I guess, what, trying to do math on air, immediately violating that 16 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, 16 years ago this week. So when you when you say all four quadrants, is this concentrated on the, like the nose section? Because like I would expect the orbiter to shield half of the ET pretty well. I'm thinking the nose is what took the brunt of damage because when you see pictures that's a great question and when you see pictures of both the um the damage as well as technicians working on the damage the technicians are kind of uniformly at the nose of it and so yeah so i think that's kind of that's that's kind of how that works yeah fair enough and so there's some really cool images showing all the the pockmarks this is um, I don't know temporarily whether this is the worst thing since or the worst thing until uh, woodpeckers or whatever were deciding to live uh, in the ET. But at least there were more uh, individual locations of damage that happened there. So in this case, one way or another. So anyway, uh, before they rolled back, I thought this was interesting. Now, the payload, which turned out to be a pretty extensive payload, was the S3 and S4 truss, right? These two are integrated. I'll talk a bit about them later, the details of what that truss segment or pair, you know, truss combo, I guess I could say, what its details are. But um, rather than, you know, that needs to stay in a clean room. And as a result, the rotating service structure with its payload changeout room, the gigantic clean room that's part of the rotating part of the pad, swung over and they basically opened the shuttle payload bay and extracted the truss along with the other uh, payloads that were in there. Let it sit in the RSS in a nice clean room for months until this June launch. And so I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, that's where you keep the uh, the payload while you then roll the rest of the stack back. And then uh, repairs, which actually began on my birthday in March, started. And depending on how bad the individual damage part was, they'd either do uh, what they call the sand and blend technique, 
which I think is kind of descriptive, right? It's almost like, uh, I remember one time I had scratched a, a, a wooden desk that I had. And so I tried to put some coffee grinds on top of it and kind of smush it in there and then kind of uh, spread over the surface a little bit. And so I guess they were doing the equivalent of that for like the least damaged parts of the foam. Uh, for uh, kind of more extensive amounts uh, or, you know, more extensive damage, they would pour small amounts of the foam into the voids. And then for the uh, most significantly uh, damaged parts, they would just respray those areas. And so the technicians worked hard. There's some cool pictures showing what it looks like when they're working on it. Um, there's some little clips out there too uh, on the internet. And yeah, and you can uh, see what it's like applying this uh, BX foam, uh, the orange foam to the tank. So that's finally sorted out and they're ready for their launch on June 8th, and it goes smoothly. And there's not really much to say about the launch. It was a nominal launch. Uh, the entry was fine. They rendezvoused with the ISS and they docked. All kind of those sort of fun, exciting, you know, press uh, conferences or post-flight uh, conferences that the astronauts give. And they were kind of describing that it really was kind of straightforward what they did. You know, they get into neat details about who was controlling which part of, you know, let's say the rendezvous and docking and, you know, some details about which burns were being used, which are fascinating, but not really too much to say about that. Uh, one fun bit of trivia, though, was this is the first time Engine 2059 flew, uh, SSME Engine 2059. And this is going to be Artemis II's number two engine. And so, uh, yeah, so we had a piece of what's ultimately going to be dropped into the ocean, sadly, tragically enough. But the first flight of that engine uh, was on this, uh, it was in position number one at the top of the the triplet of uh, SSMEs, and now it's going to be, you know, one of Artemis II's engines that ultimately gets in the drink. Something we got to keep an eye out for is these serial numbers. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I think it's fun to try to keep track of them, yeah. Now, the payload itself um, was, again, I mentioned the S3, S4 truss, and when you look at this one, it's kind of the most complicated, in my opinion, looking truss structure because it's got, I mean, the fact that it's a combo means that you have... Um, two bits to it. So now at this point, the P3, the port side P3, P4 truss had already been installed. But, um, and so the way these work is that there's kind of two main parts to it. The, uh, the one side, uh, which looks like a big block, contains the uh, uh, photovoltaic radiators. So removing a lot of the heat that comes from the solar panel wings, because that's what uh, those, that canister that has the, uh, the solar panel arrays uh, is also part of the, uh, I guess, the S3 part of the S3, S4 truss. And so there's also some batteries in this block. And so that's kind of, yeah, so this is where the uh, solar rays are. And so this um, is also the inner uh, of the two on each side. So uh, I guess it's the S5 truss that has the outer array or the S6. I, I think it's the S6. Actually, S5 might be just the cap, which is also a weird truss segment. But in any event, that's not this week in spaceflight history. Yeah, five is like in between. And then it's yeah. six, four and six have the, the solar arrays on them. Okay, thank you. Yeah, because cause part of this ends up getting this like circular um, cross section to it, this part of the truss, because it also includes the SARGE, right? The solar array rotary joint. And uh, I think, yeah, I think the S5 and I guess the P5 caps as far as I could tell, they just like take that circular cross section and make it a, squ or a square or whatever kind of rectilinear one it is that the S5 <laughs> and P5 can, or sorry, S6 or P6 can then mate to uh, nice and comfortably. So, yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think both fives, I think they're, they're already rectangular, but I wouldn't be shocked if I had that wrong. Well, the fives would be. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm not, yeah, I got to admit, I may, maybe I'm not, because I, you know, I didn't research you know, uh, S5 and S6 specifically for the show, but um, may, maybe it's not so much, uh, as, as Colin uh, gracefully puts it, uh, converting a round peg to a square peg, but uh, rather it's just um, making the one end of the S4 truss compatible with what ultimately is the one end of the S6 truss. And so it's a nice little bridge one. But what's cool about this, oh, and I guess, yeah, I said, so there's the, the block, the, 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 the part of the truss that contains all the, uh, uh, the, the photovoltaic radiators and the batteries and the actual uh, solar arrays. And then the other part is a truss, uh, essentially. It's just got that classic looking, you know, scaffoldy kind of thing, very open aired, or I guess open vacuumed of space. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's cables and there's joints and there's trunnion pins and there's all sorts of good stuff there. But uh, uh, being together, this is a, a big old 
uh, a heavy piece of payload here. And so it, it has a mass of over 15,900 kilograms or uh, exceeding 35,000 pounds. So one might say wow. it's a real chonky boy um, <laughs> to, to bring on orbit. Yeah. How does it compare to the other assembly missions? Good question. In, by mass, do you know? No, but I can look it up. Oh, and yeah, and I was thinking about when I was talking, uh, when, uh, the, the last twist if I think I did was about the OBSS, and I spent a lot of time talking about how the the Japanese module was too big for them to have the OBSS on the shuttle while it was in the bay. And I'm thinking it might just be, might have been the widest, or, 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 you know, it was wide enough that they couldn't have the OBSS, whereas uh, the S3 and S4 truss together was not too wide to also have the OBSS. They did have the OBSS on board, which is very important for the kind of next <laughs> bit of history I'll talk about. But um, mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think, so it's kind of a, a self-burn from, you know, a few weeks ago. Uh, I think I, I miss stated or speculated that the, the Japanese module might have been the heaviest uh, component taken to orbit, but this uh, kind of flies in the face of that. Uh, I think Tranquility and the Cupola together are probably the heaviest, 19,000 kilograms, oh. but that's that's two components together, and I, I, I think you can, yeah. you can cut that in half. I mean, not, not in half, but like you can separate those out, and that makes more sense. And of course, we're not going to count like Zarya going up, because that's, sure, sure. <laughs> that's not a shuttle. So Wikipedia has a great um, table on their integrated trust trust structure uh, page. And so indeed, it, it, you know, the, the S3, S5 uh, combo is the, the, the weightiest. But as you're pointing out, uh, that's just talking about that truss itself. Whereas STS-117 also included the, uh, the APCU or assembly power converter unit which was uh, basically changing the, the – the, it had to do with the uh, station's electrical system. And so mm -hmm. that added um, some more weight to it as well. And I guess uh, if you include then both arms and everything else, the total mission payload uh, along with the docking system was uh, 19,083 kilograms or 42,071 yeah. pounds. So whether or not you want to think of the S3, S4 yeah. truss combo as a chonky boy or Atlantis yeah. on STS-117 as a chonky boy, they both were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of uh, definitions that we would have to decide to, to get to that, uh, that most heavy uh, mm -hmm. answer. But yeah, I'm definitely up there, right? Yeah. Cool. Cool. Thank you. So, so uh, by the time they got to flight day three, and I'm going a little uh, chronologically out of order, but on flight day three, uh, they grabbed it with the shuttle uh, RMS or SRMS and handed it over to the space station's RMS or SSRMS. Um, I love all the different ways you can call these. Canada, Canadarm 1, or I guess just Canadarm passing it over to Canadarm 2. And in any event, uh, I thought it was pretty neat that the station arm, once it grabbed it, uh, they didn't do the EVA to install it until flight day five. So there was kind of just an overnight parking that they had. And so it was just kind of chilling there. I don't want to say dangling on the arm, but I'm sure it, looked <laughs> like it was dangling. <laughs> so now, like I said, I just jumped uh, ahead to flight day four when they did this handover of the truss. And then on, you know, uh, later flight days, they did EVAs to have it installed and all went well as you, right, you've seen the station that has power coming from them. Although now uh, we've got the iRoses replacing them, the integrated rollout solar arrays. Oh, ISS rollout solar arrays. In any event, uh, if we go back to flight day one, when uh, they did a uh, uh, an OBSS scan of the tile protection system, right? This is STS-117, so this is post-STS-107, uh, so we had these other uh, measures in place to check for any kind of... Uh, damage to the uh, TPS system, and uh, I, I was able to check on the uh, that at least from grabbing the OBSS to stowing it, we had talked about how long these scans took, and so there was five and a half hours from grabbing the OBSS to stowing it. So that's a minimum, I guess, uh, time that it took, or no, a maximum time that it took. And so, uh, but it probably was, you know, still order of hours to do the scan. Now on flight day one, uh, Pat Forrester, one of the astronauts up there. Uh, who is the you know would later become the uh, head of the astronaut office, and in fact he was until uh, Reed Wiseman took over, and then Reed Wiseman recently stepped down, so he could be on Artemis too. So also some fun topical stuff. But uh, while they were doing the inspection, uh, Forrester noticed that the uh, the port side Ohms blanket was actually peeled up four to five inches. 
Like, it's almost like if you just grabbed it at the seam and just kind of ripped it back and we're like, uh-oh, I shouldn't have done that. And so uh, it had taken some damage, apparently, on ascent. And so they sent it to the, uh, the, the you know, the, the footage. They did a closer-up scan, uh, took some pictures, right, because that's the whole idea of the OBSS. It makes you able to put it at the end of uh, the shuttle RMS and be able to look more closely at parts of the orbiter's TPS. And uh, they sent the, uh, these, this imaging and this information to the damage assessment team. And they were like, all right, well, this turns out to actually be a very tough part of the uh, uh, vehicle. It's very tough to model this part. But based on what they did know, they suggested that on reentry, enough heat could get under the blanket that could exceed the ohms pod limits. And so you could have some failure back there structurally. And that, of course, is really, really no good. So even though it's a lower temperature part of the vehicle, right, that's why there's blankets instead of tiles there, um, you still are going to get heat and it's designed to, you know, protect the, you know, what's underneath either way. So that's kind of scary uh, that that happened. But everybody was, you know, cool about it. It's like, okay, well, that's why we came up with these procedures to make sure we weren't going to lose another uh, uh, orbiter to a uh, damage to the TPS system. So... Uh, they did a contingency EVA. So this is one that wasn't scheduled and wasn't on the on the books. And so on flight day eight, uh, JR, uh, James Riley, what everyone called him JR, who uh, interestingly enough served as the head of the USGS later under the Trump administration. And so that was, you know, semi-recently. And uh, Danny Olivas, uh, uh, both uh, mission specialists. And uh, it the whole EVA, which wasn't just repairing this blanket, uh, almost took uh, eight hours even. It was seven hours and 58 minutes, so pretty, you know, long for an EVA. And what they did was, which is, I think, fascinating, is they thought about kind of what they had and what it would take to make things work. And so they ended up using a surgical stapler from the shuttle's med kit, as well as what? some pins from the TPS repair kit that I guess were designed for, you know, this or other sorts of... Uh, emergencies related to the TPS blankets uh, that you want to have some pins around and yeah and did what you imagine you would do with those and so um no they, they practiced a little it down yeah pretty much they practiced it ahead of time but uh, uh Danny Alevis was he, they put him at the end of the uh the RMS uh they maneuvered it out there and he basically just kind of pushed it into place stapled it and pinned it and did some good uh, embroidery work there um, wow. Like actually, actually did surgery with tools from the surgical kit. It, mm. Unbelievable. That's why I wish I knew more about this mission before I uh, came up with the, uh, the clue because, yeah. you know, Chonky Boy was fine, but like, I don't know, like, I feel like shuttle surgery or just how like larger rocket than surgery, like life surely. this kind of was. Yeah. Rocket surgery. This, Colin that nailed would be it. It's rocket surgery. Wow. Oh, that's so cool. That would have made for a good, um, remember space hacks? That segment we used to have. Yeah, yeah, totally the spirit. <laughs> Definitely a space hack. Yeah, and so the fact that you, uh, you know, STS one seventeen is in a household name means that they were uh, they were fine uh, after they had landed. Uh, Post flight images showed that it mostly held in place. Um, <laughs> I, I've seen some pictures of it that uh, it doesn't look perfect, but the fact that it, you know, did a good enough job to prevent the heating from exceeding, uh, you know, any dangerous limits when, you know, it's coming into the atmosphere at Mach 25. So, you know, damn good job, Danny. Uh, but uh, but they, they it was more than just, you know, flying by the seat of their pants. Uh, they had actually done wind tunnel testing to show that, in theory, that it should be fine, even with the kind of stapling. Like they tried to mimic how the uh, emergency surgery would be done on the ground, and then run it through some some wind tunnel tests. And so, by really the next day, flight day nine, uh, the damage assessment team had cleared it, and so yeah, they were able to get back a okay yeah, after this know. contingency EVA. I'm looking at very unfocused images from the ground after after the land, but like it. It looks fine. I don't know what you're talking about. It, that looks great for being fixed on orbit. <laughs> it really does. I think you have to look at basically super high resolution images on yeah, L2. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. And then you can kind of see that. I mean, there's not much more than you could stick your fingers in there, but you couldn't stick your fist in there. Yeah. No, that's a great explanation. Fantastic. Yeah. Interestingly enough, this wasn't actually, I mean, this was the uh, the highest profile TPS issue, but it wasn't the only one they had. Um, there were a couple gap fillers protruding on different parts of the uh, the vehicle, um, but it was nothing serious and they didn't have to do a uh, an emergency EVA to 
try to, uh, or I guess a contingency EVA to try to repair them or remove them like they had to do on one flight. Um, but one of them I, I liked, I, I learned a new term of the, the shuttle's underbelly. And so if you look at a high resolution image, which we'll have one in the show notes, right? And so you look at the belly, you start at the nose cone, and then directly behind the nose cone is the, uh, the forward uh, wheel well. And then just behind the wheel well, there's a, a piece of, or it's two pieces of reinforced carbon carbon, because it gets a little hotter there apparently, and it's shaped like an arrowhead. So they call this the, the arrowhead on the, uh, the belly of the orbiter. And so right in the middle of the, uh, the belly is a little uh, circle, and that um, is actually where the, fo- the bipod uh, that connects the shuttle to the external tank, that's where that connection point is made. So right um, in between this uh, reinforced carbon-carbon arrowhead. And when it's severed, interestingly enough, the bolt actually falls into the shuttle side while the bipod gets carried in, along with the uh, external tank during jettisoning. Do you know what that attachment point is made of, though? Because clearly it does remain exposed. It sits within the little arrow. And I can see on two different photos. In one photo, I guess it's the first time it's flown. It's like a bronze kind of color, kind of like a copperish. And then in another one, it's black. So I guess that's what happens after it's flown once, perhaps. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, in the two I shared... The color looks significantly different. Yeah. I believe it's made out of ink now. Well, and what, what's crazy is it's it's also not just an attachment point. It's also a bearing. Like it also can rotate uh, to absorb some angular uh, mismatch. Now, now, naively, I'm I'm thinking that there are you know heavy duty metals that could survive the reentry, and so long as it's just a small piece, like you're not coating the mm-hmm. whole bottom of the shuttle in heavy metal that can take temperatures of however many thousands, you know? So I think having a few exposed elements that are just, you know, Inconel or something else is, is A-OK. And it's also about how much gets past that outer, sur- how much heat gets past that outer surface. And so like you said, yeah. if it's um, mostly really well insulating tile, but there's a little bit of ink canal poking out. That's fine. Cause that little bit of ink canal can't transmit heat through that quickly. And I guess I forget that there are things that can, you know, withstand those thermal loads just fine. It's just that we use tiles because they probably weigh less. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ink canal is probably just, just fine too. Although it does, you know, carry heat. Yeah. It tra- it tra- the whole, the whole shuttle would heat up. So you'd have to make everything right, yeah. out of ink canal, which <laughs> that's, that, that's a, that's a very good question that I ask. That's very interesting because it's not something to really think about. Like what about the parts of the shuttle that like there are parts that are literally not Reinforced carbon, carbon, tile, or blankets, you know, <laughs> that arm part of the mm-hmm. TPS. I bring up all this talk about the arrowhead just because there's a weird phrase um, or a weird series of words that come together when you read about <laughs> the other gap filler, and it's a protruding arrowhead tadpole gap filler. And I, I don't know how much time I spent trying to figure out what on earth an arrowhead tadpole gap filler is. And I finally got to the, 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 Easier one to figure out was a tadpole gap filler is one of the types of gap fillers, right, going between the tiles. And it happens to have kind of a little, it resembles a tadpole. It's got a little bit of a swirliness to it in that sense. Um, But the arrowhead bit, uh, it wasn't until I figured out that the arrowhead is what they call that part of the TPS, the reinforced carbon-carbon. And so um, uh, since there's no gap fillers on the, in the reinforced carbon-carbon, it's basically where the, the, the arrowhead segment meets um, the TPS tiles. And so it's at one of those intersections where that gap filler was sticking out. But it wasn't sticking out enough to cause any problem. And so they the, the damage assessment team cleared it and everything was A-OK. So at that point, you know, I think they had, they had one more, they had a fourth EVA after this uh, one doing the emergency surgery. Uh, and so then they returned home. Uh, they passed off Clay Anderson, who's going to be staying at the station, and they brought back Sonny Williams, so I wanted to mention Sunny since you uh, brought her up earlier, <laughs> who uh, right will be flying on Starliner, and uh, also during during STS one seventeen, uh, she uh, Sunny Williams had surpassed Shannon Lucid's time on orbit, so longest time uh, for a woman uh, to be on orbit, and so very cool. And do you, do you know what day? This is crazy. There's no way this was planned, but the day that. Uh, she broke that record was also the anniversary of Valentina Tereshkova's flight to the day. Oh, wow. <laughs> I did not know that. That's good trivia. <laughs> it's, it's a weird one. I mean, you get you break enough records, eventually you're going to land on some significant uh, 
coincidence but and so uh they had uh, some bad luck about touching down um there was bad weather and right there's consumables so you can't stay on orbit forever but uh because they were they they had changed i think uh, what systems they were running to try to conserve uh energy and the consumables and so even though they had to wave off uh, these two extra days they built in and they also had to do this contingency eva so that kind of put them back as well but uh, ultimately, they were able to touch down at Edwards on runway 22 after just shy of two weeks, like literally like maybe an hour or two of being almost exactly 14 days. And so, yeah, that was a uh, a mission that I think had a lot of interesting things going on with it. And uh, from stapling to the hail damage to passing over, you know, the biggest single, you know, piece of truss or payload that they had handed to the you know space station uh, arm to go and install onto the iss so in any event that's uh this week in spaceflight history very cool that that was a really good one dennis you, your fixation on shuttle has totally <laughs> nailed my geek niche um you keep you keep pulling out good ones. yeah you're always uh finding little things that at least i've never seen before i'm like oh yeah look at that little dot there i never thought about what that mm. was well thanks all right well next week is the 13th to the 19th of june david do you have a clue for us uh yes i do next week in 1971 a six-sided system i love this clue if you <laughs> think you know what this clue is in reference to shoot us a tweet use the hashtag this week sf or better yet go on our discord and drop your guess in the in, in the bot there's a there's a command um submit your guests to our bot and uh good luck everybody good luck so let's move along then to upcoming spaceflight events we have three possible launches well probably two maybe three then we have two spacewalks so launches spacewalks maybe launches i don't know uh what's the first one ben yeah spacewalks launches and rumors of launches right so first up is um a launch out of china we believe that this is Connecticut one um not a hundred percent sure um because the um there are no tams issued but it doesn't specify which mission this is so launch library has guessed um that this uh is uh connecticut one flying uh, a payload called flight two uh <laughs> very simple so it's um flight two is going to have uh 26 satellite kind of like ride share probably a lot of cubesat kind of things um so if that's this great if not We'll find out what other launch happened. But either way, it's going to happen on uh, Wednesday, June 7th, um, sometime between uh, 0401 and 0424 hours UTC, according to this NOTAM. And then after that, on the 9th, uh, we have a Falcon 9 Block 5, and that's launching Starlink Group 511, so another Starlink batch. And this one is uh, launching... On the 9th from 0756 UTC to 1125 UTC. So a couple hours launch window there. Uh, launching from Slick 40 again from Cape Canaveral. So yeah, just more Starlinks from Slick 40. That seems to be the main <laughs> pad. And then on June 9th, we have our... Uh... We have one of our two spacewalks of the uh, week, which actually tie very nicely to this week in spaceflight history. <laughs> and so uh, 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 on June 9th, which is a uh, Friday, we have uh, U.S. Spacewalk 87. And so the spacewalk uh, coverage will begin on NASA TV at 7.45 a.m. And they will be installing an ISS Rollout Solar Array, or IROSA, on the starboard truss of the International Space Station. And so this one might be going on to the S3 or S4 uh, Solar Array. Um, otherwise, the other <laughs> Spacewalk of the Week is going to be the one that goes on it, because one of those two is. While the coverage begins at 7.45 a.m., the Spacewalk itself is... Uh, scheduled to begin at approximately 9.15 a.m. again, Eastern Time. After that, we've got another little bit of an unknown launch happening. Um, so we know that this is potentially the launch of Transporter 8 uh, on a Falcon 9 Block 5. The question is, is it actually going to fly on this day or not? Um, so right now, um, we believe it's going to launch sometime on Monday, June 12th. We don't know what time. And when we can't find a time, that's usually a good indication that the mission isn't going to fly. Um, but we're seeing a good couple of indications that it may well actually be flying sometime on June 12th. So keep an eye out for that one. And then after that, we have uh, the other spacewalk to install another IROSA. This is on June 15th. Um, and coverage for that will begin at 745 
in the morning Eastern time. And this is to install an iRose on the 1B power channel, and that's on the starboard truss. And it'll be the same two astronauts. So like I said, coverage begins at 7.45. The actual spacewalk is scheduled to begin at approximately 9.20. So a couple hours later. Check that spacewalk out as well. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Okay. And with that, then let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Mike, Colin, Leon Running Man, Ryan R., The Greek, Cy Kyle, Vax Headroom, Astro, and Delta V with a Space for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you'd like to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're at Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.